as you're coming in here. Thank you. Just was reminded of a text. Paul says in the opening to the Romans, now remember, he's, a, he's writing to a Christian church. He says, Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So Paul's writing this letter to Christians. He calls them saints. And then he says this, down in verse 15, chapter 115, he said, So am I eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Isn't that striking? That Paul writes a letter to Christians that are already saved, and he tells them, I'm so eager to come to you to preach the gospel to you. They're already converted. But he longs to bring that encouragement, that refreshment that comes only through the gospel. Because the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A to Z. That's the longing I have this morning for us, to sit under God's word and to hear the good news that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. We're in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 to 15. This is a sermon that, to finish up the sermon card that we were going to preach a few weeks back. And this text for us this morning is about expectations and offendedness. It's about expectations and it's about offendedness. You remember, of course, the, the social climate, the evening and the day after President Trump won the election. There was crying in the streets. People didn't go to school the next day. You remember the scene at the Hillary Clinton campaign of tears, shock, utter disappointment, and so on. Now, I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't vote for either candidate. But the point is that there was extreme unmet expectations. And our text this morning deals with that. It deals with expectation, offendedness, and it even deals with with doubts. And the, the doubts are coming from a fairly surprising place. The doubts are they're coming from John the Baptist. And you, you understand the role that this man has played in Jesus' ministry. He's the forerunner before Jesus' ministry. He's the one who baptizes Jesus. He's the one who cries as one in the wilderness saying, prepare the way, make straight his path. The Lord's coming. And here he doubts. Look at verse one. I'll read the whole text to us in a moment, but it says, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You realize how shocking that is, right? You realize, as I said a moment ago, this is the one who in Matthew chapter three baptizes Jesus. And now he's in this place of doubting, so much so that he sends his disciples and he says, John wants to know if you're the one. Or at this point, should we just go look for another one? 
His expectations have not been met. He doubts. And further, Jesus senses something else. Look down at verse 6. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended. The, the word in the original Greek quite literally means to cause to be brought to a downfall. To cause to be brought to a downfall. Jesus is saying that his life and ministry has the potential for people to lose heart and be brought to a downfall. The, the, the depths of offendedness The depths of offendedness and doubts and unmet expectations that John has at this point could lead to devastating effects and devastating consequences. So Jesus and Matthew, through Matthew's pen, they spent a whole chapter dealing with doubts and expectations. What a wonderful, merciful Savior. To address these issues with us. So let's read the text together, then I'll pray and we'll unpack it. I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word here. We are grateful that when we see the doubts of even John the Baptist, you are kind and gracious and merciful to deal with those doubts, to deal with those unmet expectations, to deal with the challenge of being offended by Jesus in his life and ministry. We pray, God, that over the next few minutes here, as we look at your word, that your spirit would make the text alive to us. We pray that we would be comforted through the hope of the gospel, that the word of God would be a balm to this congregation this morning. You can do it, Lord. We ask you to in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points. 
Kids, if you're taking notes, there's three points to today's sermon because Jesus addresses three kinds of people. So we'll unpack it under these three headings. The poor, the least, the violent. The poor, the least, the violent. And if you wanted to put a verse number by them, you could say verse 5, verse 11, and verse 12. Each correspond to those three points. And we should say that these people that Jesus describes here are the kind of people that are not offended by him. They're the kind of people that are not offended by him. So let's look at what, what marks these kinds of people. Point one, the poor. First look at verse five. It says that the poor have good news preached to them. Good news is preached to the poor. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, good news, the Greek word euangelion, this is the verbal form of it, but it means to, it's, it's an announcement. And the word is not unique to biblical literature either. The word comes up in ancient historic accounts. The word quite literally means to proclaim victory. It's a word that was used in in ancient writings or uh, in in the ancient world when an invading army had been defeated. It said, good news, the battle's over. The word was used when a new king or an emperor took his throne. We have writings where it says the good news of the reign of Caesar Augustus, the euangelion of Caesar Augustus. It's a message that goes out for all to hear making a declaration that things have changed. It's an announcement that goes out declaring that something has been done on behalf of the people. It's an announcement letting them know that they are recipients of this good news, of this gospel. That's what the word literally means. It means gospel. It means good news. It means an announcement. But Jesus here is using the words... And he is using the word to declare to the world that the true king has come. A new order has come. He's declaring victory over sin, death, and the devil. He is declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is present and alive in the hearts who will receive this good news. And Jesus is not just saying that this is an ethereal way of thinking of things. It's not just a new kind of mindset. It's not a new agey way to think about the world around you. It's a historic event that literally changes the fabric of things. It ushers in a new age. Sins are actually forgiven. Relationship with God is restored. Regeneration can now occur. Spiritually dead people are made alive. They're given a new heart. People are literally transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's a declaration of a historic event that has happened. So here's the bottom line, okay? Here's the, 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 the bottom line, cookies on the bottom shelf. The gospel isn't good advice. The gospel is good news. The, Jesus didn't come to the poor to give them some new good advice. The poor don't need good advice. 
Lepers don't need good advice. You remember the section there, five and four and five, describes this group of people, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, dead or raised up. The dead don't need good advice. They need a declaration that something has changed. That the fabric of things as we know it has been altered. What do we mean? That the gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. We mean that the gospel isn't something that you need to do. It means that it's something that has been done for you. The other religions of the world can give you good advice about how to get up to God. But the historical events of Jesus Christ's life are how God broke through the evil of this world and made a way for us to get back to him. He brought the kingdom to us. It's good news. Now people are offended by this. But Jesus says that there's a kind of people that are not offended by it. The poor. Go tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor of good news preached to them. Why are they not offended at this message, but others are? There is a, there is a kind of, of liberal Christianity that, um, that puts on a nice face towards the poor, but really at its core is deeply patronizing. There is a kind of liberal Christianity that says that we can believe in the moral teachings of Jesus, but not the miracles, not the blood. The sacrificial system is, is ancient, antiquated. It's not how intelligent, well-rounded educated people think it's sort of this kind of Christianity that sort of pats the poor on the head but it's incredibly patronizing because this view of things views Jesus views Christianity as something that you can just add to your life it's, it's a way of, of looking at the, at the teachings of Jesus and, 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 and Christianity as a, as a way to maybe improve your marriage, as a way to improve your relationships, to make you a better person, etc., etc. Ah, but the poor. The poor know how things really work. The poor know that everything that they have is a gift. The poor know that they don't need just some more good advice. The poor know that they need good news. The poor are intimately aware of the circumstances of life around them. By way of example, consider the first century and the, the, the rampant poverty that existed in the, in the ancient Middle Eastern world. Commentators suggest that 95% of the world at that time was living in, in, in what we would consider today to be squalor, to be just, just, just poverty, impoverished, 95% of the ancient world, okay? Imagine a message of good news, of, of good advice, rather, to this group of people 
where, where, where Jesus comes along and says, now, okay, if you, if, you, if you love your neighbor this way, if you love your kids this way, um, uh, if, you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you love your spouse this way, then, you know, everything's going to work out for you. That's not what they needed. The ancient world needed a gospel. The ancient world needed a savior, needed a redeemer, needed a king who could utterly change the fabric of things. They didn't need just some more good advice, something to add to their life. They needed something to come in in a radical way and change things. So my friends, brothers and sisters, this is the only way to come to the Lord Jesus. To come in this disposition of poverty. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. It is the only way that we can come to him. Not simply for good advice. Not simply to, 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 to improve our marriage, to improve our circumstances, to improve our relationships. We need to come to him as a savior. We need to come to him as one, declaring to him we need everything radically changed in our lives. And the good news is that he does. The good news is that's the message that he's actually bringing to us. So that's the first point, the poor. The second point is the least. The least. Verse 11 says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now listen, we're looking at characteristics of people that are not offended by Jesus. Okay? Do you understand the nature of what Jesus just said here about John the Baptist. Jesus just said, of all the people that have ever lived, there has been no one greater than this man. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Elijah, not Daniel, no one else. Up to this point in all human history, not the disciples, not the apostles, has no one arisen that is born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. He is the uh, par excellence of what it is to be a human being besides the Lord Jesus. He is the greatest man that has ever walked in the face of the earth. And Jesus says, I tell you that the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Do you realize how radically offensive that is? How radically offensive that is to certain hearers, to certain ears. You're saying that the most upright, the most moral, the world's greatest man that has ever lived, there is someone who's the least of these in all the kingdom, the one who's the most deserving of the grace of God in Jesus, is greater than he is? How can that possibly make any sense? That's offensive. This man who's lived his life the right way, he's been completely sold out for God all these years. He was the one preaching repentance in the wilderness. He's the one who had the honor and privilege of baptizing Jesus. He's the one who's been leading people and pointing people to God all these many years. Sorry. All these many years. 
He's the one who did things the right way. He's the one who very little accusation could be said of him. And Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what that means? You know what the doctrine, the statement behind that is? Is that God sees a sinner resting in the grace that is offered in Jesus as more beautiful than even the most upright man who's ever walked on the earth. He sees you, a broken, needy sinner that's resting in the grace that's offered to you freely by Jesus. And he sees that as more beautiful in his sight than the most morally upright person that ever walked on the planet. God loves to shower his mercy and grace. God loves for his people to rest in his mercy and grace. God loves for people to embrace the gospel. God loves for people to say that all my hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. That brings him more glory of us resting and trusting in him, finding our hope, identity, our security in him than even the most morally upright man that ever walked on the earth. And that's yours this morning. That's yours by simply clinging to it by faith this morning. God is glorified in your life this morning simply by you resting and trusting in him. And that's offensive to a lot of people. Must have been offensive to John. John's in prison. John's in prison about to lose his head for the ministry that he's conducting for Jesus. And Jesus looks at John and he says, John, the least in the kingdom is greater than you are. That's the second point. Pretty straightforward. The third point, the violent. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now this this is a very difficult phrase to understand. So I'm leaning heavily on on two great commentators and scholars, Leon Morris and D.A. Carson, to understand what does this mean? Because it seems like we can read it in a negative way, that the violent take it by force, okay? But there's a way to read it in a positive turn, because the verb here is in in the middle tense, this is what this is the terms that Leon Morris and Don Carson describe it. He said, the kingdom has entered with a burning zeal. They said, the kingdom invites us urgently. The kingdom comes to us and goes forward with a triumphant kind of force. And the word and the, and the, and the progress of the gospel is such that the, that, the, that the language here is even that it's violent. That it's moving forward at such a rapid pace. That it's so in your face that it's almost violent in nature. It's like a raging storm coming into your life. But we get that, don't we? 
we get that the kingdom invites us urgently. That, that word doesn't even describe the, the totality, I think, of what Jesus and Matthew are trying to get across to us here. What they're saying is simply this, that if Jesus Christ really is who he says he is, then that's radically going to change every single aspect of your life. If, if, if Jesus, who upholds the universe as we know it, he upholds stars that are in galaxies that are billions and billions of, 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 of miles away that you and I will never know about, he upholds them with the word of his power, they're like a speck of dust to him. If that's who he is, if that's who this Jesus Christ is, the word made flesh to live in, among us, he can't simply be an add-on to your life. He's going to come at your life in a violent, urgent kind of way. It means that he demands allegiance over all aspects of your life. He's not just a piece of furniture that you can add to your life. He's not like a new outdoor patio set that you bought this spring that you can invite people over to and be like, that's kind of cool, huh? That's not the kind of Jesus he is. He's Lord over everything. He made everything and he comes at you in a violent sort of way. And he comes into your life in a violent, turn everything upside down, turn everything around kind of way. There's no other way to receive him. There's no other way to receive him except as the savior of the world, as the king of the cosmos. And that is offensive to people. (laughs) That is radically offensive to people. Because we want control over our lives. We want autonomy over our lives. We want to find things and look for things that we can put on the shelf and kind of decorate up our life a little bit. Jesus will have none of that. He has nothing to do with that. When you come to him, we cannot ask the question, will he help me get what I need? Because if you come to him, if he really is God, then he demands everything. But it does mean, it does mean that the kingdom suffers violence. In order for Jesus to come to us, he had to leave the comfort of everything. What he endured was the violence of death. So that we now, brothers and sisters, can receive the violence of life. What do I mean by that? Look, coming to Jesus will mean that your life is overturned. And sometimes that's painful. When you go to a surgeon and you have need of a operation, and something needs to be removed, something that's cancerous or something otherwise, you can't simply say, you take it out, but I I don't want it to hurt. Sometimes it's going to hurt, but it's got to come out. The pain will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Let me move towards a close by thinking more about this nature of the violence of death and the violence of life and the violence that Jesus endured to come to us for our sake. Because on the one hand, John is asking a pretty good question. Remember, he's got unmet expectations. 
He's potentially offended. He's got doubts. And he has them for good reason. Because listen to what Jesus is quoting here. Jesus is quoting to us from Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is the passage where we learn about the blind seeing, the deaf ears opened, the lame walking and dancing for joy. I'll read it to you. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and the highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. You know, I've got here in my Bible, I don't even know when I did this, but I saw it this morning. Even if they are fools is underlined. And I have these words, Hope for me. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That's hope for me. That's hope for you. But you see, I read it in a certain way to emphasize the then in verse 5. Because it says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. John's got a good question. He's got expectations of a Messiah, of a Savior who's going to come in on the war horse. He's got the expectations of the Messiah who's going to come in and, and turn the regime upside down, restore the kingdom unto Israel. And John says, what's going on here, Jesus. And Jesus quotes to him the second half of Isaiah 35. You remember that place? There's places that we know that John the Baptist is, 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 is compared. He's a prophet like Elijah. You remember those, there's places where Elijah is angry at God because God won't destroy the wicked. John's got that same kind of Elijah type spirit inside of him. And Jesus quotes the second half of Isaiah 35 to him. When he really wants to know about the first, where's the recompense of God? Where's this vengeance of God? And you know the answer, don't you? The vengeance of God. The recompense of God. The reason that even fools will not get lost on the way is because it's going to be poured out on this man. The man, Jesus Christ. The wrath that I deserve, the wrath that you deserve. The ability to bring to us the blessings of the kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom are all those things that are in the second half of Isaiah 35. They're all those things that are listed to us in Matthew 11, 4 and 5. All those blessings of the kingdom can come to us because the recompense and vengeance of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on Jesus Christ. He receives the just condemnation. So that his people can receive the blessings of the kingdom. Who will not want to come to a savior like that? 
Come to him poor. Come to him simply clinging to his grace. Come to him in an urgent, violent way. And rest in the blessings of the kingdom. Because you have no expectation for wrath. You have no expectation of being cast out from the presence of God. All you have are the best things to come. The blessings of the kingdom now. And life everlasting, life eternal. With Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for Jesus. He's offensive to the proud. He's offensive to those who want to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. He's offensive to people who want to cling to parts of their life. But to us, he's beautiful. To us, he's glorious. To us, he's a merciful redeemer and savior. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the Lord's table. We celebrate and we proclaim what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So this table is open to sinners. Sinners who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you've made that profession public through baptism. If that's you, you're a member of this church, you're welcome to partake. If that's you and you're joining us from another fellowship, you're welcome to partake with us. We're going to come up row by row, starting in the back, to grab the elements. You can take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in communion.